for us, for the way we look at it uh, from Pakistan, our future, economic future, is now linked to China. China is growing at a faster pace than probably any other country. Uh, and, and Pakistan, uh, you know, can really benefit from the way China has developed, the way it has lifted people out of poverty. That was Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan speaking to Al Jazeera in September of 2020. And it's actually something that he's repeated several times in many venues. The very first speech that he made as prime minister, recent interviews that he's given, Imran Khan has repeatedly stated that China is the model toward which Pakistan needs to look in order to learn lessons about development and economic growth. And the reason for that is because he sees China's initial conditions as being far closer to Pakistan's than those of Western countries, which until now have kind of dominated discussions about development, discussions about modernization, and Western governments were seen as the end goal, the thing that we should all aspire to. But now it's China. China's story goes something like this, that there was initially 30 years of a socialist planned economy. And then in the last 40 years, after 1978, 1979, there was an opening up toward the market. And that led to China's growth. It's because of the adoption of market principles. The planned economy or a command economy or central planned economy is associated mostly with socialism and socialist projects in the 20th century, which sought to rationally allocate resources through a plan. How you would industrialize, which industries you would invest in, how much investment you would do, what the prices would be for goods, how industry was organized, all of that was under government control. Well, maybe not all of it, but a huge chunk of it. And similarly, even in agricultural production, it was no longer about individual peasant households, but rather in China, somewhat like but different from the Soviet Union, there was a collectivized agriculture where people did not really own their own plots or even farm their own plots, but rather you had collectivization in, say, a production team at a village level, you would have everybody working the land in common together. And then the gains from that, whatever was produced would then be distributed amongst the workers, according to conditions that were laid out both in law and through negotiation in that production team. That meant that welfare functions were also associated with basically where you lived. So it was your commune, which was ultimately responsible for providing you with healthcare and education. And much of that was funded by what your commune produced. In urban areas, the state would provide certain welfare functions to workers who were working in these state-owned factories. The critique of that, aside from the argument that the process of collectivization led to an incredible loss of life during the Great Leap Forward, was that overall production was stagnant and incomes stagnated. Starting from 1978, though, China adopted market-friendly reforms, and this was after considerable political turmoil in the 1970s in China, starting with a certain decollectivization of rural agriculture. That meant that each household was now responsible for an individual plot of land, and they would be producing 
mostly for the market. That was combined with allowing greater private ownership and control over industries. That meant private corporations could now set up in China. Even state-owned companies were now run like private corporations. They would have to think more about profitability than maybe the kind of welfare functions that they were thinking about under the socialist period. And aside from that, China opened itself up to considerable foreign capital. And we've spoken about some of the consequences that result from this in terms of the food and agricultural corporatization, which may have contributed to the emergence of new diseases. These reforms are supposed to have, over the last 30 years, lifted you know, nearly 900 million people above the poverty line. And really, that's much of what Prime Minister Imran Khan is talking about. But if incomes were increasing, so was income inequality. And what that means is that the people at the top of the Chinese kind of society, the corporate bosses, the Communist Party's elite, and a large emerging upper middle class were making a lot of money, really banking it, while people at the bottom were getting left far behind. So maybe their incomes are increasing, but the gap between the rich and the poor was increasing very, very fast. We've also heard of terrible working conditions in many Chinese workplaces, about the huge reliance of Chinese companies on informal labor, that is workers with few job protections, few job benefits. So if there is economic growth and development, then who exactly is benefiting and in what proportions? In other words, development, sure, but development for whom? What is the role of labor in China's economic growth? How are workers treated in this? Under what conditions have they gotten things better or gotten things worse? And does China offer a model that other developing countries like Pakistan should be following or really can be following? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we talk about the relationship between politics and economics and sometimes a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm your host, Numan Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To talk about labor and China's economic development, I was very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Ying Chan, Assistant Professor of Economics at the New School University in the United States of America. She's written widely on labor conditions and labor's contribution to economic development in China. Let's hear from Dr. Ying Chan. I studied actually mainstream economics in my undergraduate years back in China where I grew up. And I'm always very interested in development and inequality. Um, and as, as you know, that mainstream economics doesn't really provide a lot of good explanation or solutions to the question that I am interested in. So I decided to pursue doctoral studies uh, in the United States um, at and eventually, I studied, I studied at UMass Amherst, which is one of the um, what we call heterodox economics programs in the United States. And there I uh, was exposed to many uh, different economic school of thought that go way beyond the neoclassical uh, theoretical framework. And um, I am always very interested in studying uh, economic development, political economy, and Chinese economy. And I like to say that I study capitalism and its contradictions. So um, 
for some of the topics that I have uh, done research about, for example, green economy or informality or living wage, those topics might seem quite apart from each other, but uh, to me, they're all uh, manifestations of capitalist contradictions in different um, aspects. Um, most recently, I'm, I just wrote a paper uh, criticizing this global Green New Deal from a global South perspective. And I was mainly arguing that without uh, changing the overall economic structure of many countries in the global South, even an aggressive Green New Deal program would not be able to address some of the ecological cri crisis that they are facing due to a hierarchical structure in the global division of la labor. So that's, that's pretty cool. I think we had, uh, we had Max Isle on who was mm. speaking about something very similar. Oh. So there's the, the global Green New Deal and what it might mean. But as you said, a lot of your work has looked at informality uh, living wages, that kind of stuff within the context of China's economic development. And one question that uh, comes up for me, and especially a lot of us who are, especially in the Pakistani context, uh, our prime minister has repeatedly said that we need to look to China as a kind of model for our economic development. And it's not just in Pakistan, but many places around the world, there's a question of whether or not there is a Chinese model of development. Do you think that there is uh, something like this, a, a Chinese model of development? And, and, or how is it that you use the term Chinese development in the work that you've done? Yeah, I think it's understandable that many developing countries are um, looking at Chinese development model as something um, distinct from, uh, let's say, Western path uh, mm -hmm. because of its similarity, because of the similarities in terms of the initial conditions of development. Um, but I actually think that um, if we really look at the initial conditions of development for all countries, including the Western economies, then we actually may, a, may be able to detect a general pattern here. Um, there is heavy exploitation of workers, uh, there is strong state intervention, and there is uh, exports. So basically we have uh, long working hours, terrible working conditions. We have uh, state issuing laws and policies to facilitate uh, primitive accumulation or to protect industries from foreign competition. And we have uh, a, a very strong uh, reliance. We see a strong reliance on the foreign market. These are all the commonalities for uh, countries that are in the early stage of capitalist development. England, for example, right, it, it, has ter it had terrible working conditions in the beginning. It was the world factory. And most more recent examples of East Asian miracles, for example, South Korea. Hmm. South Korea also has strong state intervention. Um, the state was investing a lot of uh, resources in capital-intensive industries so that they can have uh, the, the kind of competitive industry uh, um, in the electronic uh, area so that they can become you know, competitive in the world. And also... Um, Alice Amsden, um, actually, uh, she wrote a lot on South Korea. She also once taught at the New School. She calculated that in South Korea, for example, during the 1970s, uh, the average rate of surplus value was very high, was about more than 400%. It was twice uh, the ratio as in India at the same period of time, 1970s. So basically, uh, this heavy exploitation of workers 
It's very common um, that we are observing it now in China, and it has happened throughout the history,、uh, especially when capitalism is just started to develop. So I think that's been、uh, a major focus of your work. So there's, as you said, there's state intervention, protectionism,、mm-hmm. closing off your economy from international competition. There is、mm-hmm. a selective reliance on the foreign market. You want to、mm-hmm. export manufactured goods,、um, but The question of labor exploitation, or some scholars call it labor repression or labor repressive、um, exploitation, that's an important one, and I think that's one that's characterized、uh, your work. So that's、uh, is that something that you can expand on? Like, what is what is it about that kind of exploitation of labor that you're talking about that makes something developmental? So, what might seem a little Bit different or distinct、uh, within the Chinese model, for example,、um, is that I mean there are I think there are two things. One of the things are related to what you're asking about the labor,、uh, which is that at the beginning stage of China's market reform, which is in the late seventies,、um, China has already developed、um, a well-educated,、um, healthy, and disciplined labor force, and that was a result of heavy. Investment during the planned economy period, actually, on mass education and on public health.、Uh, you know, data shows that in, at the beginning of 1951, when you know,、um, when China、uh, was just started to to be ruled by the Communist Party, life expectancy was only 32、uh, years old, and literacy rate was only 20 percent for the entire population.、Hmm. But by the end of、um, 70s. Uh, life expectancy already、uh, was doubled; was sixty、uh, five, and ninety three percent of the twenty five to twenty nine year old people are literate at that、wow. time. So all these、uh, things are pretty unique to China's experience. Something that、um, most other developing countries didn't really、um, experience. So that actually prepared China. To be co- to have this cost-competitive labor force for its later、um, integration into the world、uh, world economy and into the later capitalist development. But then again, the historical、uh, juncture really mattered because China launched its market reform in late seventies. This was actually the period when the entire world is starting to experience this neoliberal transition. Right, we have started to hear in China. We start to have see. Reagan administration, etc., administration talking about the importance of neoliberal、uh, neoliberalism, and China at that time also had just、um, ended,、uh, you know, Cultural Revolution. There was this、uh, struggle between different. Um, models of development, you know, there are the old、uh, social development pa- model and the, the new so-called market economy or market socialism model,、mm-hmm. and that, that was the time when the Cold War between China and the United States started to ease off, and you start to see a lot of capital fly in. There were exchange of technology,、um, so this was the particular historical conjuncture conjunct- that allowed China、uh, to use its cost-competitive labor force. To start,、um, you know, taking advantage of the foreign capitals, for example, to 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 launch its own development path, and this is unique to China, but it's again not so unique if we look at the world history, because 
uh, Taiwan and South Korea, for example, also had a very similar experience after the World War II uh, due to its actual geo, uh, geopolitical significance during the World War, uh, Cold War. It started to receive capital from uh, from the United States, start to launch land reform, actually, as a way to uh, launch this ideological battle uh, with their neighboring communist countries. So geopolitical um, factors also played a very significant role, I, I would say, um, at the particular timing, each of those countries started to launch capitalist development. So th there's some interesting factors that you bring up. I think uh, before before we proceed, I think that we should just define development very quickly. Like, what do we mean when we're talking about China is developed now, or China has developed a lot more than it was before? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I actually would say that China has developed significantly during the planned economy period. We see a rising uh, income per capita. We see human development index basically improving a lot, right? Uh, uh, the thing that I mentioned about life expectancy and uh, literacy rate, for example, mm -hmm. um, I think those are uh, uh, the, the three major components, basically, of the HDI we see significant improvement in China, uh, both during the planned economy and in, and in the market uh, economy period. Well, there's, there's uh, some interesting questions about this that I want to get mm -hmm. back to, because when, when our prime minister speaks of China, he says, we want to look at the last 30 years. So that right. rules out the planned economy period that yes. you're talking about as achieving a lot in terms of income per capita, literacy, and life expectancy, those three components of what we call human development. But to go back to some of the comparative ideas that, that what you're talking about brings to my mind, in Pakistan, we still don't have significant achievement of adult literacy, for example, is about 65%. And the youth bracket is, that, that is ages 15 to 29, is um, 71%. It's much lower than the figure that you gave me, which is 93%, in the 1970s or in the, in the late yes. 1970s. So we in still early. have... In, in the early 1970s. Yes. <laughs> so that, that, that's remarkable. Uh, we're still not there in Pakistan. The other thing that you pointed out to was land reforms, which were very important in South Korea and, and Taiwan. Yes. And they were very important, in, of course, in the communist countries, uh, China and North Korea. And as you pointed out, even in South Korea and Taiwan, and other scholars have also noted this, this was in many ways a reaction to the threat of, of uh, communist movements within those countries and in their in their neighboring countries and in Pakistan we don't have that we don't we've we've never had anything that resembles the kind of comprehensive land reforms that have existed in uh, in uh, in East Asia so it's interesting that if, if we only restrict ourselves to the last 30 years there's a lot that we miss out but exactly. then the, the question then is what makes the last 30 years distinct why is it that everybody points to that and says stuff like hey look you know, China used to be very poor or had a lot of poverty. So you've told me income per capita increased during the planned economy. Nevertheless, if we look at 1980, 1980s China, it was still very poor. That's, that's what we would say. And that in the last 30 years, China has lifted, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, or at least that's the narrative. So um, I, I think the mainstream academia tend to focus on only the uh, last 30 years of development in China. Uh, I would say that this was mainly out of ideological reasons, right? Because basically after the economic reform, China could be considered as um, 
you know, really joining the, uh, uh, the, the, the world capitalist um, club that it is started to using to use market economy. Um, it is started, uh, it has started to uh, uh, really raise, uh, um, uh, to improve, for example, uh, consumption, uh, domestic consumption. There are larger quantities in terms of consumption goods and a wider range. And it was a very different case uh, in the plant economy. In the plant economy, uh, there are also uh, a significant uh, investment, uh, significant uh, accumulation, what you know, some scholars would call it primitive socialist accumulation. But most of those uh, accumulation was used in the, in, in that, into investment, investment into both um, um, heavy industries, light industries, and all the other uh, social aspects, like I said, um, education and public health uh, part. But consumption was repressed. And this mm. is something very common, actually, for, for, for the relatively poor communist socialist countries. So if we really look at uh, people's living standard, you will see, you know, they don't have a lot of consumption goods to, to have access to. But that, that, uh, but that doesn't mean that they are, um, I mean, the, uh, the poverty measure itself, uh, if, we're only looking at, if we're only looking at the income per capita, it is missing a lot of aspects. For example, during the per uh, socialist period, um, education is free, right? And health, basically, the um, um, health cost is also taken care of by the work unit, by basically where the workers uh, work. Um, but now all those social services are commodified. You will have to uh, uh, spend money out of your pocket. And this actually increased um, um, uh, increased the expenditure that every uh, household will have to, uh, will have to uh, make. And so in that sense, even if your income is growing, uh, the actual purchasing power indeed is also in growing, is also growing, but uh, basically there are a lot of things that are previously affordable or uh, even free now have become really expensive and, um, and affordable um, items. So that actually create a lot of pressure on, on workers. So uh, when you say that indeed, if we look at the measure, if we only act the poverty measure, we see that a lot of people seems to have um, passed some uh, threshold of poverty measure. But actually, if we look uh, at the nature of their work, the nature of their uh, labor, it is a very different case than before. For example, rural migrant workers, right? Before they work in the land where they are born into, and uh, they work in the agricultural collectives. And the agricultural collectives itself would provide um, a schools, for example, a health clinic, for example. Uh, but now, uh, with the uh, agricultural decollectivization and with the market reform, uh, with the uh, 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 with land allocated to each individual household also started to realize that they can no longer live on farming alone because, you know, they only have a piece of land and there are only this much agricultural products that they can get out of. And then they have to compete with other households. And eventually they feel they started to realize that they will have to find other means of living. And then they were basically compelled to go to towns and, you know, cities or urban sectors to find a different living. And this means that they will need to leave their family behind 
and that created a lot of issues in the countryside. There are left behind kids, right? Kids who、mm. only get to see their parents once a year, and there are elderly suicide because you know these people. On the one hand, has to、uh, take care of the young ones. On the other hand, they have to work on their own land, and there's a lot, lot of stress. And once they started to develop、um, illness, sickness, they have no money to to see the doctors. So a lot of elders in the countryside just decided to、uh, commit suicide. So there are a lot of tragedies ongoing that are not really captured by the by the by the index that we're looking at. Urban sector at the same also. Before during the planned time,、uh, planned economy during the socialist time, urban workers enjoy this what we call the iron rice bowl. Basically, means that your 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 job is tenured, right? Once you started to enter the factory, you are you know you are going to work there、uh, for for the entire life, and you、uh, retire at the age of fifty five.、Um, uh, but now with the market reform, we're in. Uh, China has also introduced this kind of contract system, labor contract system. So workers are facing direct competition from、uh, the much cheaper and、uh, much more、uh, hardworking rural migrants from, you know, from the agriculture sector. And also, they feel、uh, they face direct threat of unemployment. Right? If the employer doesn't like you, they can just fire you. So. All the the typical capitalist disciplining mechanism is being introduced.、Uh, young people these days, there is a term、um, that we call nine nine six. Basically, means that the the bosses, the employers, are expecting you to work、uh, from nine in the morning to nine、uh, in in the night, six days a week. And that was the expectation from the from the boss. You will have to endure that work intensity, otherwise you won't have a job anymore. So this kind of pressure, this kind of uh, insecurity, uh, this kind of、uh, constant pressure、uh, of being fired or not not being able to have a job、um, is really haunting the,、uh, all the lab labors throughout the country. And this is a very very different、um, different mindset. That people、uh, during social time would have. So, but these are the things again not captured by the by the statistics. So when we say people are、um, being lifted out of poverty, but、uh, what is the quality of life now? Right. It, it, this is something that we cannot really see from the, from the numbers. And it's interesting that you point to nine nine six. I was reading this、mm. article recently about revenge procrastination. Mm, mm-hmm. I wear a lot of youth in China will come home after their job and they barely have any time, so、yeah. they they just deliberately delay going to sleep so that they can actually have some time for themselves. Yes,、um, and then that might affect their productivity at work the next day. That's fine because that's on the boss's time.、Um, exactly. So that's that's an interesting thing. But I, I guess one thing that then we're we're pointing to. So you know you've pointed out how. Land goes from being something that is a collective responsibility,、mm-hmm. and a collective responsibility is not only that people have responsibility to the state, but also that the state has a responsibility to the people. That's in rural areas, in terms of schools, health,、uh, and then there's the responsibility that the state has to people in urban areas with the iron rice bowl, and vice versa. But that gets privatized or commodified in a sense.、Uh, land is decollectivized, and also. Workers' conditions go from being formal, from being secure, to becoming informal and insecure, and that's something that you've written about. That informality has been central to 
China's development, but that it is now facing a problem in terms of, well, I don't know if it's a problem or if it's a good thing, that more and more labor is becoming formalized. So can you, can you explain what's happening here? And is that good for labor? Is that bad for labor? So basically, the discussion of informality started with the direct observations in the underdeveloped capitalist economies. Um, in China, this was a very uh, recent uh, topic that scholars started to engage. Um, but it really shows that uh, the capitalist development has reaching a, a bottleneck in the sense that it stops to be. It stops to absorb uh, people into the formal capitalist development, um, into the f- capitalist employment sector. Um, so I, I think we're talking about uh, maybe two different things here. Um, uh, I mean, I'm I'm going to get into the uh, discussion of household registration system in a minute. But in China, uh, one of my studies shows that uh, the informality or the share of informal employment in the entire labor force uh, contracts and expands alongside the economy. Basically, if we draw a, 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 a scatter plot, a, a graph, we, we could see that when economy is in recession, more and more workers are being pushed out of the formal sector. Um, this is very common, actually, uh, for a lot of developing countries uh, where basically the capitalist sector is unable to uh, secure a lot of workers into the formal sector or not cannot or let's say cannot afford to have workers to have a lot of workers in the formal sector because being in the formal sector, the very definition of it is that you need to pay a decent wage. You need to offer standard benefits. You need to protect labor's labor rights through the labor law. Uh, when capitalists has the money, has the uh, material condition basically to afford all these expenses, uh, they would hire workers into the formal sector. But if they can't, these people are basically on their own. They will have to find some way to live, uh, li- uh, live by, uh, by themselves, right? Um, because this is a case that is actually a little bit different from the advanced countries. Although now we are also seeing a, a more and more informality in a, advanced countries mm-hmm. as well. In developing countries, um, people, most people cannot afford to be unemployed because the unemployment benefits normally are far, far below the subsistence wage. So, have, so some scholars would say, you know, unemployment is actually a luxury. It's a luxury for developing country people um, because you cannot live on that standard uh, unemployment benefits. You have to find something. You have to engage in some sort of economic activities. And that is informal work, uh, informal work. So in China, um, most of the informal employment is taken by the rural migrant workers. And this links back to um, uh, uh, this mechanism called household registration system in China, or in China we say hukou, uh, which is a system that uh, record people based on their birth location. But then the expectation is that 
the social benefits and social services that people have access to are supposed to be linked to where one is born, not where one works. Uh, this would be a less of an issue if very few people work outside their birth locations, say in the planned economy period, right? Basically, there is a very strong migration control. If you are born in the uh, agricultural sector, you work there. And only when in the urban sector, the, the factories have some new openings, we're going to recruit people from the countryside, right? So a lot of people say, you know, this is a restriction of mobility freedom, which is true. That's, that is what happened at that time. Um, but it was a less of a problem uh, when people rarely work out outside their birth location. But now it became a big issue because after the market reform, um, migrants, I mean, rural residents are free to move to wherever they they, they want to work, uh, but their social benefits are linked to the land that they were born in, not the city where they are working in. So that creates um, some gap in terms of the wages and the benefits that they can receive compared to their urban peers. And that creates a lot of uh, inequality. Um, and because they are paid less uh, lower wage or they're given less benefits, they became more cost competitive. The rural migrant workers became more cost competitive. And this creates a competition between the rural migrant workers and the urban workers. And eventually it worked for the benefit of the capital, right? Because mm. um, total labor costs were driven down and the average labor intensity was maintained at a very high level. This overall competition mechanism uh, really um, uh, w was helping the capitalists in terms of expropriating more um, more surplus value from the, from this kind of mechanism. And um, although the household registration system might seem pretty unique to China, but this the the, the rationale behind behind this mechanism, uh, this overall divide and conquer strategy, is actually very common. We can see it everywhere, right? It might pre-exist capitalism like castes uh, but eventually it can work to the benefit of capital you have different groups of people uh, that based on cultural understanding or whatever understanding that one is inf you know inferior than the other therefore we can pay them less and so that eventually it created this kind of mechanism um, that serves uh, to really maximize the profit that the capitalists can uh, extract from that's really interesting. It reminds me of something that I've seen in Pakistan, which is in Lahore, there's a whole lot of textile factories, uh, especially in the south of the city. And there will be buses uh, that come to those factories from villages, which might be an hour or an hour and a half away from Lahore. Uh, mm. And Lahore has a huge population of its own. It's got 10 million people at least. So it's a question in terms of why or how labor recruiters might be going to villages to get their labor. Um, there, there may be some scarcity of labor within Lahore, but it may also be that that rural labor or labor from the mm -hmm. villages is just cheaper. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and that's part of what's driving this. Now, the, the interesting, the other question for me in terms of informality would be what, what does uh, a formal job look like versus an informal job? If I'm thinking of an Apple iPhone being produced in China in a Foxconn factory. Is that, is that formal? Is that informal? What, what is the, where is this informal labor working? And 
or, or rural migrant workers, especially as, as you've pointed out, as opposed to where is this formal labor working? So uh, formal employment, if we, really, uh, if we just look at the statistical uh, uh, definition, the formal employment are the ones that are um, recorded by the statistics uh, bureau that include um, uh, you know, those work in enterprises that are uh, state managed or foreign invested uh, or collectively organized. Uh, but they uh, receive standard uh, labor contract, uh, that they are protected by the labor law, that they are receiving also a standard, uh, standard living wage. Um, but the informal ones are those who do not have a standard labor contract at all, that they can let go at any time. Uh, some of the people are hired through the so-called um, agency company or dispatched companies, you know, where they are just a labor agency where they, they hire labor, uh, they sign contracts with the labor, and then they, they supply these labors to the companies that actually use their work. But those companies that directly use the, the work do not really sign a contract with the labor so that eventually, you know, uh, the labor agency company would be able to, you know, fire uh, workers at their at their own will to the benefit of the companies that are directly using those labors. So these are all different mechanisms that are very, I think, are very common in, in, in different countries. You know, they are very innovative in terms of developing these schemes to exploit labor to the highest level. Uh, migrant workers are mostly in construction sectors, uh, manufacturing sectors, um, uh, yeah, and most like or, or transportation sex, so like you know, driving trucks and, and all those uh, all those kind of things. Uh, so uh, construction sector specifically, because the work is seasonal. Uh, so in that sense, there's not a standard uh, labor contract at all. They were basically doing work when work uh, when when there is work, um, and they were paid also very uh, very little sometimes. Uh, they were paid uh, after the work is done and, you know, sometimes the boss would just uh, basically, you know, stop the contract in the middle of the work so that the workers' all previous work were in vain and they, they, don't, get the, uh, they don't get the wage eventually. So there are a lot of grievance uh, in, this particular, uh, in this particular sector that workers uh, were not given proper wage after the work is completed. Uh, so this is basically the, the, uh, the situation in China right now. That sounds a lot like Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's one, there's one thing that I'm, now that I'm thinking about it, that um, maybe I'm a bit confused about. So you said that on one hand, there are dynamics of a capitalist economy where if there's a recession or if growth is slow, then there's going to be greater informality. The yes. capitalist sector cannot absorb this This. Uh, mm-hmm. which then implies that if growth is is increasing uh, mm-hmm. and growth is high, then there will be more formal labor. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it, it also sounds like with the household registration system that you've described and the dynamics of rural versus urban labor that you've described, that informality is almost a deliberate strategy, a deliberate strategy of the state in order to provide cheap labor for capitalist development. Um, how are those two, are those two things related, those, those two kind of sites? So I, I think that, um, of course, they're related. Um, so basically, I think the divide and conquer strategy is definitely a deliberate, a deliberate design. 
but it didn't start with the Hukou system. And one of the paper was actually arguing that Hukou was actually playing different functions under the um, planned economy uh, versus the market economy. Uh, it was really after the market economy starts uh, that Hukou is uh, starting to play in this function of uh, deliberately keeping the rural migrant workers um, at a particular cost level so that it can serve as a reserve army pool to drive down the overall uh, wage costs for the urban sector as well. This was not really the case in the planned economy because the direct the competition wasn't there. There was no direct competition that urban workers face from the rural uh, workers. Um, so in that sense, yes, there's this deliberate uh, creation of different uh, groups of workers competing with each other. Um, and then uh, the, after the capitalist market started to establish itself during the rapid growth period, during the period where capital accumulation was really uh, um, you know, ongoing smoothly and fast, the capitalist sector were able to attract a lot of the labor. Um, but again, even within the same enterprise, there are different kinds of workers, right? There are workers who are more skilled and, you know, there are uh, you know, managers, there are uh, workers that are more highly educated. Those might be the people that they hire as formal workers, that they sign contract with, uh, with the company. But then there are also unskilled workers. There are workers who, uh, you know, are really recruited uh, based on their, uh, you know, for example, it's a, if say it's a very labor intense work, then they would rely on people who are young, who are healthy, and uh, 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 once these people reach certain age, say even you know early thirties. The company would think that you know they are no longer very productive. I feel uh, you know they, they feel like they're no longer very productive. Then they started to recruit another um, uh, group of workers to replace the L a little bit uh, mid-aged workers. Those would be the group of people that are relatively uh, and that are informal, basically, right? That they just re uh, keep replacing each other. Uh, so the example that you were asking, Foxconn, for example, Foxconn would have their own formal sector, formal employment uh, workers. They would also have a sector of workers that are informal, that they can just be let go at any time based on the company's profit. There was at one point in China where the discussion of labor shortage was very, uh, uh, was a big issue. Uh, that was around the economic recession time, and a lot of people are saying that they started to see coastal regions. Um, in the coastal regions, there are those export-oriented companies that are trying to find workers that are not there anymore. But that was actually a myth. That was a particular time when, uh, during the economic recession, lots of laborers went back to their own hometown from the coastal regions where they work, because they saw no job opportunities. But then the state started to give this stimulus package and the company started to uh, you know, uh, go, circle back to their production. And at that particular time, there was a very short period of labor shortage. Mm. And that was also because the companies wanted a particular age group of works. I forgot the exact age, but, but I think it's like 20 to 
just like early 20s or something. Because for them, even a little bit older than that would consider would be considered to them unprofitable because they're not fast enough. You know, all those monotonous work, it requires a lot of concentration and uh, this um, 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 sophistication in terms of using your hands and everything. So even a little bit older, say people in their 30s would be considered not usable for them. So that's why it created that certain uh, amount of a uh, certain time period of labor shortage, but it was not there anymore. That The question of labor shortage is an in- interesting one because I was looking at some data around inequality and poverty in China even if, if we look at them by mainstream measures. And the suggestion is, okay, so one thing is that the absolute level of poverty, if we only measure it by consumption in that sense, has gone down uh, over time, over the last 30 years. And the other, but, but that was always coupled with a very sharp increase in inequality. There were a lot of people at the top getting very rich, mm-hmm. and then most people at, at the bottom kind of stayed there even if their absolute levels of, of consumption were increasing, their relative levels of consumption were decreasing. And as, as you've also pointed out, there's a lot of stuff that's left out of that calculation. But more recently, data suggests that inequality is now decreasing uh, ever so slightly, but it is, it is decreasing. Uh, so is, is that, are we looking then at this kind of classic Kuznets curve where you have a, a rise in inequality and then that will go down and you know, that's kind of associated with this idea that the remuneration of workers in China has increased. And mm-hmm. it's increased to a point where many companies are now saying, is it even competitive for us to remain in China? Right. Right. And that might be combined with geopolitical questions, but there's certainly a drive to now relocate to, say, India, where perhaps labor is cheaper. Yes. Yeah, this is definitely very likely to happen. Um, as we're seeing, I mean, we're seeing a lot already it is happening uh, that, you know, companies are shifting out to Indonesia, Vietnam, and from China. Even within China, we see uh, that a lot of the capital investment are now shifting from coastal regions to inner regions. And even if it's actually very you know, far from the, um, the um, export uh, location, that uh, they actually have to transport goods from inner region to the coastal region and then export. Um, but it con- uh, capitalists consider it worth the, worth the cost, uh, precisely because the labor costs there are cheaper and the labor militancy there was not so strong at that mo- at, at that particular moment. So these are all the considerations that capitalists are making. Uh, one of my paper was also showing that, um, although I mean things like you mentioned that inequality measure might be lower, and even uh, in the uh, period of uh, 2011 to 2014, we see actually a very fast growth in uh, in labor share. Basically, means the workers. Um, Workers share in the overall in the in the overall pie that were rebuilt, right? Uh, in during 2011 and 2013, the labor share rises at almost two percentage point annually, and mm. that was very very fast. And that was the time actually the labor militancy was the, the most fierce. Uh, there were a lot of labor struggles, and they were able to reach some very successful results in terms of getting their wage raised and things like that. So a lot of labor scholars and labor activists were really looking into that period and saying that, oh, wow, oh, China's you know, labor uh, struggles are really developing its momentum, and we should be able to see more and more in the coming years. But then into starting from 2013, 14, 
all those labor struggles started to uh, started to decline. And in terms of its quantity, in terms of its militancy level, and the labor share is rising only 0.3 percentage points starting from 2013. And so the uh, the paper that uh, I was uh, that I wrote was arguing that this is not something that uh, should be considered as a very arbitrary change in government policy, but instead the change in the overall capital accumulation speed. Because at that point, at these, uh, if we're looking at those two periods of time, we actually see that when the labor militancy is most fear, fierce and when labor share is rising the fast, fastest, that we're also, th those are also the times when uh, the capital investment is uh, growing the fastest. The annual growth rate in fixed assets investment at that period it was 20% annual growth. Uh, compared to only 15%, a, li a little, much, much lower, actually, 15% uh, between a late, uh, you know, in a later period. So in that sense, uh, a very, uh, the intuition is basically that the capitalists need to have the profit at hand to be able to give some of it to the workers. So during that golden age of labor struggles, capitalists are making a lot of money out of it. Mm. And at that time, you know, they are facing, of course, also pressures from the NGOs, from the international media. So they decided to concede to the labor a little bit. They, did, they decided to have this, you know, accord, this agreement with the labor to give you some wages, right? Let's just uh, uh, go, back to, go back to your work. But then after that period, when capitalists themselves are unable to really uh, make a lot of profit. I mean, again, this is related to the overall um, position uh, China has in the global division of labor. That's uh, very much related to the hierarchical structure that I was talking about in the beginning of the uh, of the discussion. Was that the profit margin for the capitalists in China was already very thin based on the industry that they were able to get get into. So when their profit is being squeezed, when the capital accumulation is stagnating for them, they don't really have anything to give out to the workers. Of course, this is not to defend them, right? What they are trying to do is to ask the state to collaborate with them and to violently repress the labor struggle. Hmm. And that is why we are seeing all those violence crackdown of uh, uh, student activist group um, and even now it was, it, it has been, uh, it has reached the point where uh, the state is not even allowing some schools to form discussion group uh, on Marx, for example. It's very ironic because in China, uh, the standard education curriculum incorporates education on Marxism, right? So right. But then in college, now they're saying, you know, you're not allowed to form that discussion uh, anymore, right? Because it seems like you, you're really understanding it and applying it to the reality, and that's not that's something they want. So, um, so in that sense, uh, this kind of uh, measure of uh, inequality might be showing that it's it, it um, it's uh, it's progressing a little bit, but other index, if we really uh, compare it uh, with say uh, the thing that I mentioned about the labor share, we are seeing that um, it, it is uh, it is experiencing a retreat from the early 
2010 period when uh, the labor militancy was was the most uh, fierce. So I think you, you raise a very, very important point, and that is that, sure, there's an economic dimension where if capital is making more money, then there is more money in the pot, so to speak, to be divided. However, whether or not it gets divided is ultimately a political question. It's a yes. question of labor organizing. It's a question of pressure from NGOs, from media. Yes. But fundamentally, labor militancy is what gets labor the goods. Um, so yes. it's not just some automatic story of development and modernization that will automatically lead to greater wages for workers. But exactly. on, the, on the other hand, then there's also the, the uncertainty of, of capitalism, where if, the, if that starts to contract, uh, the profitability starts to go down, then that incentivizes a political response, which is repression, uh, yes. repression, freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of organization. Mm-hmm. All of those things are connected to, to kind of these economic dimensions. So that is important and, and, and very fascinating. So how does this stuff that you're talking about in terms of labor conditions changing, labor uh, shortages or labor repression, all of that stuff relate to the question of China's position in the global hierarchy? Yes. So I think the overall international division of labor is really posing a hard constraint on uh, the kind of uh, development path that each country can take. Um, and um, just relate to what we have to, uh, we have been discussing. Um, if we're borrowing the framework of, um, of Wallace Deng, for example, uh, China would be considered as a country that are now in the semi-periphery um, stage in the sense that it's not entirely periphery uh, because it also uh, are now, you know, extracts uh, raw materials and, you know, uh, cheap laborers in, in other countries. But on the other hand, it's not in the center because all the most profitable, uh, highly value-added industries are not uh, in the hands of, of countries like China. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the profit margin, the profitability uh, that capitalists in China are able to have access to uh, is really just in the middle. It's not, it's not really very, very high. So in that sense, the overall material condition that China, ca- China has is that it can give very little uh, to the workers as a compromise to build the so-called welfare state that we are seeing in some of the advanced capitalist country. So this, I think, is a very realistic situation. And this should have some implication on um, the overall labor struggles that the kind of form of labor uh, stru- uh, that labor struggles should, would, would take uh, in China in the next several uh, in the next several years. Basically, what are we really demanding for? Right? Are we demanding for a welfare state like most capitalist society, uh, other advanced societies, or shall we take a, think about a different path that completely uh, can 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 help get rid of the overall um, capitalist mentality? So these are the really I think the the thing that the labor scholars and labor um, actives should be thinking about. One of the things that um, might be important from the study that I just mentioned about the spatial shift shift of China's labor struggle from the coastal region to the inner region um, is that um, we might be able to see uh, some very fierce labor struggle in the inner regions in the, in the, within the next decade. 
because as we are seeing that the capital is now moving into the inland industry industrial zone uh, for for lower for lower labor cost um, and this means that they're going to hire labor in that region and this also means that a lot of the workers there are actually now working close to the place that they live and this actually imply that uh, there could be a, a strong potential to build some solidarities between workers uh, working there and the people living there. Um, this is not something. Mm. This is not something that we are we are seeing. We are observing in the coastal regions because in the coastal regions, most workers are coming from all over the country, coming from inner regions. They are only there to work. They don't consider there as their home, and they don't have any connections with. Uh, people, you know, local residents who are living there. So it's a very different scenario uh, when capital now is moving to the inland industrial regions, uh, uh, zones. And a lot of scholars, a lot of activists have been arguing that for quite some, for quite some time. Uh, so this would be something that we might be able to see uh, very soon uh, in China. Uh, that's really cool. It reminds me of a book I read uh, called Anyuan by Elizabeth Perry, I think, and she was talking about how the, mm -hmm. this was like a hundred years ago now, the mm -hmm. Communist Party was organizing in this mining town called Anyuan. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, a very important part of the organizing was that the workers came from surrounding areas. And and so when the, the Anyuan labor movement was repressed, they went back to their villages and started organizing peasants. So yes. maybe something like that might be in the cards, which would be cool. Um, I, I think I have a penultimate question for you, and then I'll ask you a, a final concluding question. The penultimate question is is uh, something you mentioned about a welfare state. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember watching uh, Xi Jinping speak uh, maybe a year or two years ago, and he was, uh, I think, frank, forthright to say, yes, we've made a lot of progress, but we have left uh, too many Chinese citizens behind. And as you said, there's there's this question of, is China a welfare state? Is a question that I have. And is, or, or is it heading towards a welfare state? And as you said, we'd, we'd like to maybe imagine something beyond that, but is there even a, a basic welfare state idea or ideology there? I don't think China now is a welfare state for obvious reasons. I mean, we're seeing a lot of labor abuse um, and uh, you know, the, the, the um, prolonged work hours that we're observing, basically uh, that it's definitely not a welfare state at this moment. Uh, the political leaders might be talking about the vision of building um, a more equal societies and to give uh, workers more benefits. But then the question comes down to whether China has the capacity to do that or whether the Chinese capitalist class um, has that capacity to do it. I mean, the reason that I emphasize capital class so much is that right now, 80% of the urban labor force are in the private sector. Basically, a lot of people are saying, you know, China's still, still very... Uh, has very strong state intervention in the economy, uh, but actually 80% of the labor force are in the hands of private capitalists. Mm -hmm. The state has a very, very minimal role in terms of the actual labor process that every uh, workers are experiencing every day. So in that sense, the state leader might, you know, might, might, might be saying all those um, um, you know, might even you know, talk, be talking about socialist ideology and all those things. But if we look at what uh, pr the premier was talking about, right? the pre premier Li Keqiang, who was really um, um, responsible for all the economic works and economic policies in the, in the, in the economy. Uh, he was talking about, uh, just this year, was talking about that 
uh, China should start to uh, develop the so-called vendor economy or stall economy. Basically, means that you know we should encourage people to do their own small business. They should, mm. you know, they should use online platform to sell sell goods, or they should even come to the street to sell goods. The implication is that. The, Chi- the, uh, the Chinese formal sector is no longer able to absorb all those workers. Basically, he's saying, you know, don't rely on the state. You know, we're not going to intervene this time. Just find something, do it on your own. And he was saying, you know, he was actually citing a data saying that you know, 43% of the population now have monthly income of only 1,000 RMB, which is, which is less than 100 US dollars. Um, uh, so, in, so in that sense, uh, you know, about about a hundred U.S. dollars. So, in that sense, you although you know all the like you said all the poverty measurement uh, or maybe or see uh, showing some improvement, but all these other complementary data are showing that um, China, first of all, is not a welfare state yet, and it might not even have the capacity to build a welfare state. So that opens up a dilemma. And you know, leads me to ask you for your concluding thoughts uh, in this sense. Now, on one hand, you've described the story of Chinese development from the perspective of labor, and it's okay, but it doesn't sound very bright. In fact, the this, this what we've discussed sounds like labor has not really improved its situation much. In fact, some of the stuff you describe suggests that between the planned economy period and now, in some ways, uh, workers, there's a retreat. There's a retreat. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if I'm, a, if I'm a, a Pakistani student, you know, belonging to a middle class, and I go to, uh, to China to study, or if I'm a, a, a Pakistani elite, and I go to China for a visit, what I see is an orderly society. I see shiny buildings. I see shiny trains that actually get you from point A to point B. I see a high economic growth rate. I see uh, a country that is independent, sovereign, that is not dependent on other countries. Um, or, you know, to the extent that it's dependent, it can at least stand up and throw its own weight around as opposed to simply going here and there for loans and such. Uh, I also see a country which has, as you described, it's semi-peripheral. Nevertheless, it is investing $60 billion in Pakistan over the next little while in the form of CPEC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. So I'm looking then at China and I'm thinking, well, why not? Why, why shouldn't we look at this as a model for development? And so I guess that is my, my question mm-hmm. to you as by way of conclusion. What do you say to Pakistani students who are looking toward China and to Pakistani policymakers for that extent, but certainly to students uh, and people like myself who are very curious about what is there to take and what is there not to take or how do we approach Chinese development critically? Yeah, this is very good, uh, very good question. So I think you're absolutely right that um, China is now presenting this image to the world that, you know, it's on the rise, that, um, uh, um, you know, uh, we do see that, you know, there is a middle class emergent and the Manalovich's um, elephant curves are also showing that the middle class in China is really better off in the overall globalization period. And these people are traveling around the world and sending kids to elite schools abroad and they're purchasing luxury brands. And all of these images are presenting to the world. And it seems that the entire population are like that. They're battering off. But 
we have also talked about that actually in reality, 43% of the population are having only monthly income of uh, 1,000 RMB. And that's not a lot. And a lot of people are facing this uh, job insecurity that are typical in a capitalist uh, world. So I would say, circling back to what we have discussed, is this common uh, misinterpretation of China's development path that most people would like to attribute China's development success, let's just call it success, just for the sake of um, GDP growth and stuff, uh, to the period uh, of market economy. But many scholars have pointed out, one of the economic historian, Robert Allen, for example, have pointed out that it was actually the, the, the fact that China was ready for the market economy that led to its eventual success. And by ready, he meant that by the end of the planned economy, uh, China already has a labor force that is disciplined, healthy, and educated. And also, at that time, by the end of the planned economy, China has already uh, developed a very comprehensive and complex in the industrial system, which include both heavy industry products and the light industry products. So in that sense, uh, it, was not, it was not really a jump, a leap for China to, to, to join the uh, World Capitalist Club, but it has the, uh, the, the technique, it has the skills, it has the labor that made it ready to, to, to basically start uh, to join the global division of labor. But we should also realize that China was actually playing this role um, of uh, boosting this uh, overall spread of neoliberalism to the world, because that was also the time that you know a country like the United States and the countries in England are starting to attacking unions, and in that sense, China joining the labor, joining the uh, World Cup's development. Uh, division of labor, uh, China started to accept foreign direct investment. China started to accept countries coming to China, outsource their labor industry into China, is actually a way of uh, uh, collaborating with the global capitalist class to attack the uh, uh, you know workers um, mm. in those countries as well. Uh, but I want to be careful because a lot of people would say, oh, this basically means the Chinese workers are stealing you know, other people's jobs. But we should be very clear that this is an arrangement that is to the benefit of capitalists in all of those countries, but not to the working class. Because we have talked about, you know, the people who, uh, people in the United States, that the Rust Belt uh, regions, right, the, the, where the workers are losing their jobs, uh, they're living a hard life. And people in China, those who work in Foxconn, Yes, their income is rising, but they are working sometimes 10 hours, 12 hours a day, standing there until they are numb uh, because they have no other choices. They cannot go back to their uh, hometown and work on the, the, the land that they were born into because they just don't have enough income in that sense. So in that sense, I think the working class is really um, worse off in, the, in that sense, in terms of their overall quality of life after the neoliberal transition. And in that sense, we, we should be you know, critically approaching China's model in terms of its 
political significance to the world labor struggle. And in, in that sense, I'm very critical uh, of the overall development path.